This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we look at how the media was caught up in arguments about that protest, still making headlines a week after provocateur Posey Parker didn't speak in public. Either side might be pushing one narrative and you don't really know what's true and what's not true. All we can speak about is what we personally witnessed. But first, the extremely untidy end of a radio network this week. Why did a major media company kill off a station that was launched with heavy hype only a year ago? And what might that mean for the rest of the media? Kia ora, good afternoon. A second harbour crossing in Auckland will start construction by 2029. According to the Prime Minister, it will be one of the biggest and most significant transport projects the country has ever seen. For more on this, including the... It was TVNZ's Chris Chang with the Midday News Bulletin on Thursday, leading with the huge news about possible new tunnels for Auckland and building new bridges. But further down the bulletin, news of burning bridges at another media outlet. Okimano, welcome back. Radio station Today FM has been taken off air this morning with one host telling listeners, quote, we're all going to lose our jobs. Well, that host was Tova O'Brien, who said things a lot less quotable for daytime TV news as well. We were told that we had the support of everyone, from the chief executive mm. through to the board, through to the executive, and they have... And Duncan Garner, who follows Toba O'Brien on the air in the mornings on Today FM, said he felt betrayed. Uh, we were told a number of times that this was a, a long-term project because radio is one of those projects that you, you know, you have to settle in uh, and slowly but surely get your numbers, get your ratings, get, get your revenue. And this is what we were we were told. Now it's highly unusual for broadcasters to vent about their own employers like that on the air for everyone to hear. That's often a sacking offence or, at the very least, a severely career-limiting one. But Tova O'Brien, who had to fight a legal battle against a former employer to join the station in the first place, wasn't holding back last Thursday morning. People within this building have been leaking against us from day one. Is that right? And we have been scapegoated as well within MediaWorks. This whole company is doing badly. We were part of this company. We were supposed to be part of future-proofing. Yeah. This and it wasn't just we a love. case of one or two hosts going rogue at Today FM that day. Later on, a wider crew of the station staff all gathered together in the studio to air grievances about their company and their fears that their time together was coming to an end. I don't know how much longer we're going to be on air, so everyone grab a mic. What's the deal? It sounds like it's over. It was indeed, and those who tuned in heard the plug being pulled on that extraordinary on-air revolt soon after, like this. We've been told to come, is, we're coming off here. This is it, guys. I thank you for your phone calls. Uh, I thank you for, for all your phone calls, all your support, all your love. And um, this, is the, this is, looks like it's the end of us. We've been pulled off here right Without now. Without even yep. given a chance. Thank you we're for listening. Thanks, folks. Well. Young Blood by The Naked and Famous signal the end of the road for the station with the slogan, News That Moves Us Forward. Other songs on the playlist soon after that included Hang On, Help Us On Its Way and Slip Sliding Away by Simon and Garfunkel. However, Today FM was launched just one year earlier with a hiss and a roar and loads of investment and promotion and extremely frequent idents and trailers voiced by Paul Henry. We'd love to hear what you think about the new Today FM. The all-new Today FM. News that moves us forward. So what went wrong? Well, it turned out that Wendy Palmer had called a meeting in which staff were told that the board of the company had proposed closing the station quickly to save money, but that staff would have until that afternoon to try and talk them out of it. 
Among those clearly not believing that that was a good faith offer was producer Tom Day, and the emotion in his voice was clear when he spoke to a video crew from the New Zealand Herald outside the Today FM headquarters. You know, if you lose lose a news lose a news outlet, um, that's that's one less piece of information for people. We get people going uh, during Cyclone Gabriel when they had nobody else to hear. But in spite of millions invested in the launch and promotion of Today FM and some bold initiatives like podcasts and Tova O'Brien in Ukraine with President Zelensky, the ratings didn't ratchet up. But that was no problem, said the head of news and talk brought in to run the new outfit, Dallas Gurney. He told MediaWatch a year ago that MediaWorks was in this for the long haul. Now the chief executive who hired Dallas Gurney, Cam Wallace, also insisted he was also committed to news and talk radio. But last month, Wallace resigned to take up a job in Australia, and earlier this month, Dallas Gurney announced he was going too. And in that guerrilla broadcast on Thursday, Tova O'Brien said it hasn't been the same since. We haven't been able to get the same level of assurance Mm. from the board, from our acting CEO, about what the future of Today FM looks like. And bearing in mind that we came into this organisation with this promise of a long-term strategy, we were going to go for at least five years, and that's when we were going to start seeing, seeing the results. They had our back for a they number had our of back years. From the CEO to the executive to the board, this is what we were told. And when I met with the acting chief executive last week, I could not get those same assurances. So when the station staff and stars heard of an all-staff meeting all of a sudden on Thursday, they had a bad feeling and they shared it with their listeners. You know, as far as I know, the books are pretty good for us. And um, I've been told that, that, you know, the numbers, they tell the story. And so hopefully that is the story. But there were not enough listeners and too little revenue, according to the interim boss, Wendy Palmer. In a recording of that all-staff meeting leaked to media, she told MediaWorks workers that Today FM costs were around $7.5 million a year to run, and the revenue for this year was likely to be just 6 to $6.5 million. Based on the financial position the company has found itself in, she said, the board has decided to close Today FM. Now, for anyone still listening, later on Thursday, there was only more music until an announcement at 5pm that day that Today FM would be replaced by a new station in April. And at about that same time, almost all the content online, opinion, audio, and even painstakingly produced podcasts, including the current affairs series The Core by Wilhelmina Shrimpton, vanished from the site and MediaWorks Audio App Rover and every other platform where you might get your podcasts. And on the air, there was just more back-to-back tunes, which didn't seem entirely random. Now, just in time for the 6pm news bulletins, MediaWorks released another statement signed off by the stand-in CEO. And this said that MediaWorks, like the entire advertising sector, is impacted by an environment with lower revenues and higher costs. And... At the request of the MediaWorks board, we have undertaken a review of the entire business to identify further areas of potential cost saving and to reshape the business for the market conditions. Now that's the sort of language that media companies used in 2020 during the peak of the COVID crisis to cut costs and jobs in some services as well. And TVNZ's One News said it isn't just MediaWorks feeling the pinch. Yesterday, Sky TV axed 170 local roles. One economist says this is a tipping point and other industries will follow. So we look at the advertising sector as somewhat of a leading indicator in regard to where the other parts of the economy could be going. 
Well, that was the opinion of economist and pundit Cameron Bagri. But just last week, the Advertising Standards Authority released the annual summary of the sums our media companies pull in from advertisers. And in 2022, it was a healthy $3.4 billion, and radio was doing OK, pulling in $276 million a year in ads last year, up from $264 million in 2021. So if it's right that Today FM was pulling in only about a million dollars less than it cost to run after just one year on the air, was it really a good call to pull the plug now after all the investment and effort of setting it up? And given that MediaWorks is one of two companies that each owns about half of the country's commercial radio stations, can it really afford to scrap its only news service? And given that MediaWorks is mostly owned by a Californian private equity fund that wants a profit, is it really their patience that's running out faster than the money or the will to persist with Today FM? Matt Mulgard leads the radio department at the Auckland University of Technology and he's been involved in radio for over 30 years as a broadcaster, manager and now a researcher. In 2021, he co-authored a study called Dollars and Listeners which showed that commercial radio in New Zealand has managed to keep both listeners and its share of ad revenue over the past three decades. It's a tough time to be doing a talk station for sure and I think the equation came more from the owners of the company than the um, head office in New Zealand. So, yeah, it's a tough one because I think the you know ultimately the, the owners of the company want to sell it and they don't want on its books a radio station that's losing money. And I don't think the fact that it was only losing a million dollars compared to um, its, its revenue was actually really that important in the end. It just cost too much and they had to get rid of it. This is a big deal in a sense you have effectively a duopoly in New Zealand commercial radio, two companies owning a roughly half each of the market, MediaWorks is one of those, and can they really afford not to have now any credible and effective news service, even for all those other uh, MediaWorks stations? Because Today FM and the newsroom that served it was that news service. It's obviously the calculation is that it's uh, no longer financially worth it for them to have that talk product in a, in a really good news and current affairs offering, including a big newsroom. So if they're running just music stations and that's the new strategy, then they'll actually um, save money by not hiring journalists and not having those big costs around news gathering. Um, in a lot of ways, music radio is a lot cheaper to do, a lot easier. And the audiences are much clearer. They're much easier to target. So one of the things that MediaWorks does really well is target younger audiences. Perhaps they'll add a new music channel, which is much cheaper to do. It was just a big cost. It was sucking out revenue, sucking out cost from their overall news doesn't matter as much as it used to for them. Sure, but if uh, you look at the legacy of this company, uh, before it was MediaWorks, it was CanWest, and before that, all the way back to Radio Pacific, through all its different iterations, it's had a talk and talk back and news element. This is really the end of perhaps 30-plus years of history in, in talk radio and, and leaving us really with, with one brand in News Talk ZB that's available nationwide? Yeah, it is. It's, it's quite shocking in that sense because we don't have any competition for News Talk ZB, and they really did need competition because it it keeps them on their toes too and it keeps everybody in the market honest, including Radio New Zealand. I mean, a news and current affairs offering um, on the radio may not be their main strategy anymore. There's um, lots and lots of platforms now. You look at the spin-off and newsroom and all the different ways you can get news and current affairs, which are not just radio-based. So I think the calculation for them was, well, you know, is it really worth us playing that sandpit when we can do other things much better and get this company looking like it's making more money um, and get it ready to get sold? After the uh, company declared finally Today FM was no more, the content of Today FM has effectively been wiped from the website, even stuff they invested in 
pretty heavily, it seems, for example, current affairs, podcasts, uh, a lot of effort would have gone into that. It's just all gone, which is in a way quite shocking. But it also points to another thing, which is this wasn't just about radio at Today FM. This was a, a multimedia project as well. So it was an innovation and that level. Does this mean we're also losing digital era news that also will be impossible to replace? That's what Today FM was doing too. It was it was well made. It was designed for its audience. It was multi-platform. Those things were really important to what I think Today FM's strategy was, which was going ahead five to ten years. You've got this um, broadcaster, which is also platformed on the internet, has all sorts of ways you can interact with it. I mean, I, I was looking forward to the election and having Today FM on for the election because you've got Tover O'Brien and Duncan Garner, two fantastic political journos. They could do multimedia stuff around that that would really, you know, help us hold these politicians to account as they're trying to get our votes. Uh, that is a shame because that web stuff is really uh, where the future is. And to lose that and just to have it taken down and disappear is also disappointing, really. Yeah, and the management has said, look, there will still be digital offerings uh, that they're going to consider as part of the replacement. Um, but, you know, I guess they've got staff capable of, of doing it. But we've seen some of the starkest comment about the distress and the betrayal they feel it's going to be difficult. But do you think they actually will follow through on that? They could do it without having the big stars. That's maybe a strategy they could say, we no longer need the Tobas and the Garners to do that because we can just do it with um, the staff we have now that are not the big names. That is an option. You could do it low cost-ish. I'm yet to see it. It's strange that they've taken all the content down and just completely obliterated the brand without having anything else ready to go or at least a message for potential um, viewers of that stuff that will be back. So it doesn't seem they've really got that right in their sights right now. Finally, it was extraordinary, wasn't it, what unfolded on Thursday? An on-air revolt like that, very, very unusual. In a sense, they pitched it as, or particularly Tova O'Brien did, as we're on the side of the listeners. You know, We've all been let down here, and they were broadcasting on behalf of the listeners and prepared to dis their own management in really blunt terms, in fact, X-rated terms in, in her case. Uh, but do you think that was a, a good thing to do in the service of the listeners? Or do you think that, I mean, that was bluntly also grandstanding and unprofessional behaviour because, yes, they were unhappy, but not everyone who loses a job as a result of a harsh and sudden management decision gets to um, air their grievances like they did? Yeah, I said it elsewhere, it was a fiasco all around. I mean, management should have been planning a much easier process. They should have made sure that everything was in line before they decided to pull the plug or let people know it was going to happen. Not ideal to do that on the radio. It's a lesson. I mean, it's also quite shocking how compressed the timeline was around this and they were given until five o'clock that night to sort of come up with new ideas. So I've never in my 30 years heard anything like it. Um, I think it's, <laughs> it's a real example of how not to do this stuff. So if your students were to ask you, you know, hey, Matt, did the uh, Today FM people do the right thing of siding with the audience and telling it straight and being transparent with them? Or uh, would you say, yes, good, good on them for that? Or would you say, no, guys, don't do that because, you know, you're there at the behest of your employer and, you know, you'd also represent them? Yeah, I want to say the first one because I'm not good with authority, but really I'd say the second one because, yeah, you do damage your professional standing. You could have said the same things later on in your Twitter feed that you said on air and let it out that way. I'm not sure um, if they, in the cold, harsh light of day, they are so happy with it now. But yeah, I wouldn't say do that. I would say think very carefully about what you do when this situation comes up. And it will be something we'll talk about next week for sure. Some of the comments in the public statement from, from MediaWorks saying the advertising 
sector is under pressure. However, we've just had last week the annual figures from the uh, Advertising Standards Authority of turnover. Overall media advertising up, radio advertising up, 270 million odd. And in your paper a couple of years back uh, called um, Dollars and Listeners, you showed that over 30 years, radio share holding at about 10 to 12 percent over years and decades. Is it is this today FM's closure really the sort of canary in the coal mine they seem to be saying? I mean, radio is one of those advertising mediums that tends to lose pretty quickly when a recession hits because that's a cost that just goes out the door of businesses that normally advertise. So I think they were looking at it and going projection-wise, but we can't see how we can get this thing making enough money for our owners to be happy about it. Um, It is a real shame because it isn't actually about the talent or about what they were doing or attempting to do both on air and online. It was actually just about what could happen to the finances of MediaWorks. Yeah, and TVNZ, for example, in the television side of things, which looks a bit more into the future than radio and other media, has also been downgrading its forecasts. Do you feel we're in a, like a new period now where fundamentally it's going to be much, much more difficult for commercial media to operate? I don't think it's any more difficult than it has been in the past. I think we're going through another um, period of rapid change, also of how companies see what they offer as um, audiences change and shrink. Um, we know radio listeners are tending older now, so part of the challenge for companies like MediaWorks and anyone targeting a young audience is where do you get them and how do you get them to engage and stay engaged in what you're doing? So I think um, in terms of revenue, that revenue shifting to digital platforms, um, all the broadcasters are looking into that and going, how do we actually capitalise on those audiences that are fickle, flipping around, going from TikTok to, to Instagram to my radio station to this to that? So I think um, what we're seeing is a shift in revenue targeting and how the commercial media especially thinks of itself as a platform for advertising. And, um, I mean, this has been seen in things like Bryan FM, which is a local low-powered FM network through the South Island and a couple of North Island ones too. And they they only take sponsorships. They don't take ads. They have sponsors of particular categories. So they won't have two car dealers. They won't have two supermarkets. They only have one of each. And that pays the bills and makes enough money to keep everyone happy. So they've thought about what does radio mean to our community now and how do we make advertising work for it? They've changed the model completely. And I think all of them are thinking that way. What do we do beyond a 30-second spot that adds value to advertisers and makes money for us? And that's the big change sweeping the industry at the moment. And it's got a digital factor too, you know. How do we use digital to make money? That was Matt Mulgard, who leads the radio department at Auckland University of Technology and who's been involved in radio for over 30 years as a broadcaster, manager and now a researcher. And he was talking to me there about MediaWorks' decision to close Today FM. Back in October last year, things were getting pretty thin behind the wire in our jails. One news can reveal corrections considered declaring an emergency at two of its largest prisons just two months ago, a move which could have seen the army brought in. And at that time, the minister was put on the spot in the media about millions spent on ads appealing for more recruits. You personally surprised by that figure? No, I think that that's what the market is at uh, this stage. I think four million dollars for a TV ad. But it, well, it's a series of ads as well as social media uh, stuff. We've been told that there's no money being able to be put aside to retain staff. There's no money able to be put aside to recruit staff. But that big bill seemed to have paid off at least a bit when TVNZ returned to that story last Monday. 
Between October and February, Corrections received more than 3,000 job applications. After vetting, it's processing 800 of those, and it's already made formal offers to 250 people. 60 others have already started work as Corrections officers. However, the very same day, it was revealed that the advertising watchdog has actually scratched one of the main ads in that costly campaign for that crucial cause. And so, yeah, might become a corrections officer one day too. So what was the problem with that ad? I looked at that on Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday here on RNZ National, talking to Susanna Leotawa on nights. If you missed it, you'll find Midweek Media Watch on the Media Watch page of rnz.co.nz or our section of the RNZ app or in our podcast feed, available for free wherever you get your podcasts. Also on Midweek Media Watch this week, we talked a little about provocateur Posey Parker, real name Kelly J. Keen Minchell, who's still in the headlines here a week after not speaking during her short but very sharp visit last weekend. Another factor in giving that story more legs was last weekend's protest rally itself and the counter-protest which overwhelmed it. Though, as Hayden Donnell reports, much of the media coverage of and comment on that gave a contradictory and conflicted picture of what actually happened. That's the sound of counter-protesters having what Auckland Pride director Max Tweedy described as an impromptu trans-joy dance party after successfully forcing the British anti-trans rights activist Kelly J. Keane Minchell to abandon her rally at the Albert Park Band Rotunda in Auckland. At that point, the protesters' optimism didn't seem all that misplaced or out of step with some of the media coverage of the event. Much of the early reporting on the counter-protest painted it as either relatively peaceful or at least not particularly aggressive compared to demonstrations like the Parliament occupation. The New Zealand Herald noted what it called some ugly confrontations, including pushing and shoving between Keane Minchell's supporters and counter-protesters, along with the fact that Keane Minchell's attempts to speak had been drowned out by drums, chants of go home, and at one point a Whitney Houston song playing over the loudspeakers, but its reporting played things straight. Others described an almost entirely positive experience of the protest on social media, with one calling it a cacophony of aroha. At the spin-off, Anna Rafiti Connell painted it as an event where, in her words, joy trumped fear and a symphony of fearlessness drowned Keen Mitchell out. By the end of the weekend, a much different media narrative had taken hold. On Sunday afternoon, News Talk ZB host Tim Beveridge asked his callers whether Keen Minchell's expulsion made for a good or bad day in New Zealand. Oh, hi. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty appalling display of behaviour yesterday. Yeah. Kicking a kick down with kicked our women of New Zealand to the curb. Mm. Uh, I'm appalled at the uh, media. Mm. It was their um, absolute disregard for the truth in this whole matter. Those callers might have been reading or watching a barrage of media, some of it originating overseas and some local, which painted the protest as violent and out of control. On Saturday night, the world's most successful author, J.K. Rowling, told her 14 million followers on Twitter the scenes at the Auckland protest were repellent. She posted dozens more tweets about it over the following days. 
At interest.co.nz, commentator Chris Trotter described counter-protesters as screaming abuse, hurling projectiles and lashing out at Keen Minchel, who he called a terrified ragdoll with eyes dulled by the effects of shock as she was heaved past a crush of fury and hate. The claims of rampant and unchecked violence were boosted by the far-right media outlet Counterspin and conspiracy-adjacent public figures like the leaders of Voices for Freedom who were at the protest to support Ken Mitchell. On the platform, Sean Plunkett introduced his Monday morning segment on the event like this. You can ring and say what you think and no one will punch you in the face or push you to the ground or screech at you while the police stand by and do nothing. We are free and open. Plunkett went on to say he wanted to hear from one particular type of caller more than others. Female callers, that's adult white female women. Women callers will get priority this morning because they got no priority or protection from our society in Albert Park. It's unclear whether that was a slip of the tongue a bit of irony referencing Marama Davidson's well-publicised comments about violence from white men, or if men and women with other skin tones were really shunted down the caller queue. At Today FM, Rachel Smalley lamented the counter-protest for silencing women. Of course, the counter-protest did include plenty of women. It's unclear whether they count in Smalley's eyes. Meanwhile, in Britain, Keen Minchel supporters called for boycotts of New Zealand products and gathered outside the New Zealand High Commission in London to sing protest songs. Some of the incidents of violence these commentators cited were genuine. Keen Minchel indisputably had tomato juice poured on her by a trans rights advocate. The juice pourer is reportedly now wanted by police for assault. At the more serious end of the scale, one video shows an elderly woman being punched in the face after an altercation with what appears to be a counter-protester. Other evidence cited for the protest violence was more questionable. A video of a man being shoved by a drag queen went viral among trans rights opponents, but it was shorn of context. The full video shows the man grabbing a warden trying to keep protesters in line by the neck. The shove came after that as the drag queen tried to push him away from the scene of the attack. Another photo shows a close-up of Keen Mitchell's face with some hands around her neck and an object being held by a protester close to her throat. Rowling and others implied she was in danger. In fact, the hands belonged to one of her security guards and the object close to her neck was a phone. I asked Isaac Davison and Katie Harris, who covered the event for the New Zealand Herald, whether the narrative developing around the rally in some media outlets and on social media matched up with their on-the-ground assessment. Kia ora, Isaac and Katie, and welcome to Media Watch. Thank you for having us. Cheers. First of all, how would you describe your experience of the protest last Saturday? We were sort of in different parts of the protest. Like Isaac was right at the boiling centre of it when Posey Parkers took the stage, but I was sort of more around the back and in the centre with the counter-protest for much of it. And if I had to describe it with one word, I would say passionate because there were obviously very strong emotions on either side. But from where I was, it was a lot more relaxed and quite, I would say, uplifting. Like There was music and stuff, but that changed once Posey Parker arrived. 
it's weird looking at the videos now because I can see where Isaac was and see friction, but where I was and the people that I was vox popping, I would say it was a very mild protest compared to some other protests that I've covered in the past. And so you were in the thick of it where all of the action and all of the controversy took place. Uh, What was that like, Isaac? Uh, It was tense. There was this unusual situation where Posey Parker's supporters were within a fence around the rotunda initially, so they were kind of separated, and the counter-protesters were behind a fence behind them. Just when Posey Parker came in, she was escorted in by security, people pushed through that. The counter-protesters came, sort of trickled through that fence, and then I think some fences got pushed over. So they all came in together and were surrounding the rotunda, and because of the you know, because it's a circle, they literally surrounded it. It's not like a stage where they're all on just one side. So at that point, I went right up to the front to see what was happening, and Posey Parker got on stage and was immediately um, hit by a protester with this, you know, tomato juice, which there's videos of now. It was at that point that you saw this look on her face that this probably wasn't going to go maybe as she imagined it. And so when I was looking back on the crowd then, there was certainly some tension and just a little bit of pushing and shoving. And I saw one of the supporters of Posey Parker had a metal bar in their hand and that was part of the fencing that had been pushed over and I just thought this it could get a bit ugly. It was quite soon after that that Posey Parker realised, you know, by now it was like a cauldron of noise sirens and whistling and, you know, go home, uh, Posey, go home chanting. And so she was sort of removed by her security. There were sort of some scuffles around that and it was quite a crush, really mainly because there was just such a big crowd at that point and then police came in and, and that is where a lot of the videos that you've seen online where it's just this short period where she was taken out and then escorted away by um, police. But I remember thinking at the time how that tension in the air, it it never really became violent in my eyes, yeah. There were incidents of violence that have been isolated uh, in the videos. You've been covering a lot of protests in 15 years in journalism. Your assessment, how does this one rank in terms of its menace or its violence? I've seen sort of some of the rhetoric that came after it um, saying that there was sort of a mob and that was sort of organised violence and that certainly doesn't match with w- what I saw on the ground. Obviously after I've seen a couple of videos come out, one particularly disturbing one in which it looks like an elderly woman was struck in the face. But for me, at least what I saw on the ground, that certainly wasn't representative of, of the protest at large. Why do you think there is such a gulf between how you perceive things in the thick of the action and what it's how it's being portrayed? A large amount of that is coming from overseas news outlets and perhaps this type of thing is a bit more toxic in the UK and the media over there are quite... I guess, like, one-sided in some regards. There's also lots of misinformation that I've seen on Twitter. Like, there was one photo going around of a phone to Posey Parker's neck, which some people were saying was a knife. And I've seen a few other things on Twitter which turned out not to be true. You know, either side might be pushing one narrative and you don't really know what's true and what's not true. And, like, all we can speak about is what we personally witnessed. And I remember going to the Parliament protest and... We see protests like this a lot. I don't think this was like this 2,000-person mob that some outlets, especially in the UK, have described it as. It just shows the value of having reporters on the ground, I think. 
to something like that and when you see the videos afterwards other people's coverage you you agonize over oh did we get this right you know were we fair about it but i think when you're on the ground and you're just reporting it straight and as what you see that's there's probably the greatest value in that and i think we stand by and i still feel a, a reporting on the day was was accurate and fair is it also a lesson in some ways of how reporting and straight reporting can be undermined now by people that are quite highly ideological and have a narrative to push on an event. I think it is hard because especially if you're in certain bubbles online you might just be getting one side of the narrative directed towards you and you you might not be getting a fuller picture if you're not getting your news from reputable sources. I met someone yesterday who was there and they were like it's so weird I had such a relaxed experience and then I saw all these videos afterwards and there was like a bit of like pushing and shoving and like everyone saying that it was violent but that doesn't reflect my experience and like Isaac said I think it just shows the value of having well-resourced newsrooms with journalists on the ground to actually report what they see instead of relying on snapshots of small a very small part of a much larger event. Has it been frustrating? What has it been like seeing a gap grow between the, the, the mainstream narrative on what took place and what you actually saw on the ground? Uh, uh, it's been quite surreal actually, yeah. um, watching it grow. Uh, I guess that whole whole tense moment of that protest lasted only about 10 or 15 minutes and as each day goes on it seems like, especially once it went international, that it got sort of took on a life of its own and got further and further removed from what that protest was like. As days went on, I went back and looked at all the photographs that I took, all the notes that I took, and emails that I sent, and words that I filed. I still go back to that strong feeling I had at the time that it was a rowdy protest, but not not a violent one. Certainly, when you see those videos come out, uh, especially of an elderly person getting hit, you think, oh, "Did I get this right?" Again, I don't think that characterised the protest. I think there were some nasty incidents on the margins, but overwhelmingly that was not what the protest was like. Katie and Isaac, uh, while we have you here at Media Watch, uh, Today FM went off air abruptly. It looks like a lot of people are losing their jobs. What's your reaction to that? Immediately I just felt really sad. And they've done some really good work over the last year, and so it's kind of sad that after only just a year um, they're being taken off. I think it'll be sad for everyone in the media industry, like seeing Today FM close its doors. Katie Harris and Isaac Davidson of the New Zealand Herald, who both reported on the ground from that rally and the counter-protest in Auckland last weekend, the fallout from which was still making news a week after Posey Parker didn't speak after all. And there the pair were talking to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday with Midweek Media Watch, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.